Local abortion providers respond to the Dobbs decision. It just cannot be legislated. It is health care. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. religious communities are reacting to the end of Roe v. Wade. There are some very conservative churches and some progressive churches, and there were various positions in between. A close look at why dozens of people have gone missing in Baja, California, and the latest fix to ease cross-border sewage contamination. That's ahead on Midday Edition. I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. Reaction to Friday's Supreme Court announcement overturning the Roe v. Wade decision continues to reverberate across the country. But how are local abortion providers adapting to this new reality? Though California abortion laws do not appear to be in danger, the situation is not as clear in other neighboring states. Here to talk more about how local providers are adjusting to the court's decision is Dr. Tony Marengo, Chief Medical Officer of Planned Parenthood of the Pacific Southwest. Dr. Marengo, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Jade. I appreciate it. Though this decision announced Friday was surprising, it was not completely out of the blue. A draft of the decision was leaked in May. Did that leak help Planned Parenthood to prepare for Friday's news? Yes, I think it did. Although, you know, we had the leak and we had time to prepare. Let's keep in mind, we've actually been preparing for months and I'll dare say years for this possibility of happening. I think the leak draft, what really helped us prepare emotionally more than anything, because I think, quite honestly, operationally, we have already been planning to expand abortion services. There are a lot of misconceptions about why women seek abortions. Can you talk about the circumstances under which most women have abortions? The decision is really between a patient and their healthcare provider. There are many reasons people with uteruses seek abortion. And what's acceptable for one person may not be acceptable for another. I think the bottom line answer is abortion is healthcare, and we don't walk in their shoes. That being said, you know, I have the privilege of being in the room with many patients when they do seek care. And it really ranges from, you know, I'm unable to care for the other children I have right now. As we know, many patients who come seeking abortion are already mothers 
to I'm not able to become a parent right now because I'm in school and I'm trying to improve you know, my life and get a career and be able to provide for a family one day. And then we have patients who unfortunately have fetuses affected with fetal anomalies and they desperately want that child, but are unable to continue the pregnancy because it might be life-threatening to them, or frankly, might just be a devastating outcome to their fetus if that that fetus was born. So it's very nuanced. It's not black and white. And when we legislate it, I think politicians and the general public sometimes miss the nuance and it, it just cannot be legislated. It is healthcare. And you mentioned earlier how Planned Parenthood has been preparing for this reality for years. Can you talk a bit about that? Even before I became the chief medical officer at Planned Parenthood of the Pacific Southwest, there were some significant realities when the prior president uh, was in office. And the prior president talked a lot about appointing uh, justices that would reverse Roe. And unfortunately, three justices later, this is where we are. Um, So I believe that uh, this affiliate, as well as abortion providers across the country, had to brace for that reality and thinking about what would that mean. So a lot of research, a lot of time, a lot of effort has been put into how do we continue to care for people with uteruses across our country when we now see the reality that 26 states are uh, either about to severely restrict or ban abortion altogether. A dozen of those had pre-row trigger bans in place so that abortions literally that were in the process of, of happening or about to happen had to stop on Friday. It's hard to predict the future, but how are you expecting Planned Parenthood clinics in San Diego, Imperial, and Riverside counties will be impacted by the Dobbs decision? It really is hard to predict. I mean, I think it was um, not surprising that we had a bump on Friday of patients since SB8, quite honestly, in Texas. Since that law went into effect and, and abortion was restricted as far away as Texas, we've started to see an uptick in patients. Because Arizona is our border state, we knew we would see an increase. We've had a close relationship with our sister affiliate in Planned Parenthood in Arizona. So we had some awareness of what could happen. But I can tell you, we had a 100% week over week increase in number of abortions booked at our affiliate. So from the Friday before the SCOTUS decision to the day of the official SCOTUS decision on Friday, we had 100% more abortions booked across our affiliate. Not all patients from Arizona, but I think it was real, really a wake-up call. And I think patients in Arizona, in particular, weren't really sure what they were going to do. And that's a, a large increase. Can clinics here accommodate a potential 10% increase in women wanting to obtain health care here? So we are expanding access to uterine aspiration abortion, particularly in our Rancho Mirage and Imperial Valley clinics assuming patients, many patients will be driving, but really across our region, planning that increase. So I believe we are ready for that. We are making strategic moves to absorb this initial bump and expanding even further over the coming weeks as we need to. Mm. You know, what are your immediate concerns for women carrying either unwanted pregnancies or pregnancies that aren't viable uh, in states right now that have banned abortions? For patients out of state who can't access abortion when they need it or want it, I'm very concerned about, number one, forced continuation of pregnancy, because pregnancy is also not a benign condition. There, are, you know, It's far more dangerous, actually, to carry a pregnancy to term and deliver that fetus than to actually have an abortion. 
So I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, maternal mortality is quite high, especially in states. I think the highest maternal mortality is in Mississippi, which has some of the strictest abortion laws. Number two, the thing I worry about is is patients, of course, self-managing their own abortion. We know this can be done safely, but it's the safest when it is under the care and guidance of a trained healthcare professional. And before we go, is there anything that we are missing in this conversation, you think? I think the most important thing is, sure, the reactionary thing and the important thing is try to help as many people as possible get the care they need. But moving forward, we need to find out and figure out how we're going to get our rights back. And we really have to do that at the ballot boxes, and we have to understand who we're putting into office. Unfortunately, um, this fight is lost probably for a generation in the Supreme Court, at least. And what they've done is return this to the states, and it's very chaotic. What you're seeing right now is you know, people in states, as well as legislators in states, really not understanding where they stand. You know, what, what are the pre-roll laws? What can they do? What's legal? What isn't legal? So there's chaos right now. And moving forward, we need to earn our rights back. And so we, we need to fight like hell for our reproductive autonomy. And it's going to be fought over in the legislature. That's where the battle has to be won, at least right now. I've been speaking with Dr. Tony Marengo, Chief Medical Officer of Planned Parenthood of the Pacific Southwest. Dr. Marengo, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Now that the U.S. Supreme Court has struck down Roe v. Wade, abortion will be banned or restricted in more than half the states. California plans to welcome more than a million people from those states who need abortion care, and it may even help them cover the cost of traveling here. KQED's health correspondent April Domboski starts off with the volunteers who have been mobilizing to help. After the Supreme Court's draft decision was leaked in May, Lee Mitchell posted a message on Facebook, written in code. It said, if you are a person who suddenly finds yourself with a need to go camping in another state that is friendly towards camping, I will happily drive you and support you. I was just furious. What I did was I fueled myself in looking for ways to help others. Mitchell had a vision of picking women up at the airport in San Francisco, driving them to the clinic for their abortion, then offering them a place to sleep on her couch, and really a hand to hold, something she did not have when she came to California for an abortion in 1970. I lived in Minneapolis. You know, I looked and looked, and back then it was, there were no sources. So I had to pay the money to fly to California. It was one of three abortions Mitchell had before Roe v. Wade. There was no counseling. There was zero. I went in there to that back room and had the abortion and came out. Mitchell is 75 now and can hardly believe this is happening again. California is expecting a nearly 3,000 percent increase in the number of people coming from out of state for abortion care. Since the fall, nonprofits have been working to recruit and train wannabe volunteers like Mitchell. I am amazed at people coming together and supporting and showing up for people that they don't even know in droves. Trisha Gray is the volunteer coordinator at the nonprofit Access Reproductive Justice. They've already been getting calls from people in Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico who need help with travel. She says she has about 60 active volunteers now, but is working to bring that up to 250 statewide. 
part of what I'm doing is recruiting near Westchester and LAX as a basis because they're close to the airport. With the pandemic, volunteers are still giving rides, but homestays have been put on pause. Volunteers help pay for and book hotel rooms instead. It's a boom, 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 you're, you're ready to go type of deal. A hotel can run about four or five hundred dollars. Add to that the cost of a plane ticket, childcare, and lost work hours, and the logistical costs alone of getting an abortion can surpass a couple thousand dollars. With the growing patient volume, nonprofits can't keep up. California lawmakers want to help by establishing a new state fund. It would help support the work of volunteer coordinators like Gray, and it would also provide cash to help out of state women pay for travel costs. It's an idea local anti-abortion activists are opposed to. We're calling it, you know, abortion tourism. Greg Burt is with the California Family Council. Come to California, go to the beach, get your abortion done, and, and we'll pay for it by the taxpayer. He says he wishes the state would put more money into removing the obstacles to having a child, rather than focusing on clearing the obstacles to abortion. Those incentives send a message that we value one more than the other. Almost 80 percent of Californians have said they're opposed to overturning Roe v. Wade. Yes, ma'am. Sorry to bug you. At the mall in San Francisco, I found a similar majority were okay with the state using their tax dollars to help women from other states come here for abortion care. I think it would be a good idea. I think it's okay. I definitely agree with that. In the fall, Caroline Fong will leave for college in Missouri. It's one of 13 states with a so-called trigger law set to automatically ban abortion after the Supreme Court's decision. Setting aside taxpayer money is really important to ensure safe abortions for women. Two people I talked to did not like the idea. No, estamos de acuerdo. Construction worker Joe Bassant says he believes in protecting life. His wife, Claudia Sanchez, says there are better things we could be investing in than that. The proposal is one of 13 bills moving through the legislature, all aimed at making California an abortion sanctuary state. Lee Mitchell is looking for ways to be more involved, more hands-on. She imagines what it might have been like when she was 20 if her future self had picked her up at the airport. I would have liked it. I think I probably would have opened up to the person to the 75-year-old Lee. I would have. I don't know if everybody would have. Seasoned advocates like Trisha Gray say today, the simple act of giving someone a ride to the clinic is revolutionary. I'm April Domboski. The court's decision to revoke the constitutional right to abortion and leave the question up to individual states has been criticized in many quarters from civil rights advocates to medical professionals and legal scholars. But the ruling came as a long sought after victory for various religious institutions across the country. Celebrations took place in some churches in San Diego on Sunday. Other religious groups had opposite or more measured reactions. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Phil Deal. And Phil, welcome to the program. Thank you, Maureen. Is it fair to say the reaction of San Diego County churches to the Roe decision spanned a wide range yesterday? Yes, it did. Uh, there are some very conservative churches and some progressive churches, and uh, there were various positions in between. So let's talk about the churches that celebrated. You wrote specifically about Shadow Mountain Community Church in El Cajon, and that's a Southern Baptist congregation, right? 
it is affiliated with the, I mean, they don't call themselves a Baptist church, but they are affiliated with the Baptist convention, Southern Baptist. It's one of several Baptist conventions. And that congregation has opposed abortion rights for years, hasn't it? Yes. How have they gone about lobbying against uh, abortion rights? I am not that familiar with the church, but generally they talk about it in their congregations. They encourage people to stand up for what they believe. They, they can't get too political. I don't think they contribute money to political candidates or things like that, but uh, they do a lot of counseling and they could participate in rallies maybe, but, but that's about the extent of it. Tell us what happened at Shadow Mountain Community Church yesterday. Well, at this church, and I think a lot of others, they have their sermons planned weeks in advance. And, and so they tend to stick to that, but they will sort of touch on the important topics going in. So at Shadow Mountain, the pastor there, uh, David Jeremiah, spoke briefly at the beginning of his sermon about how pleased he was with this decision and how long his, his congregation and Baptists in general or, or people in his church had worked toward that end and how pleased he was with it. Pastor Jeremiah said the battle is not over. What did he mean by that? He was talking about California, where abortions are still illegal. And I think he's still hoping that someday the state will outlaw them. Now, does the Southern Baptist community and Shadow Mountain oppose same-sex marriage? The convention has taken a position on that. Uh, a few years ago, they issued a resolution opposing same-sex marriage. They So definitely, that is another thing that they are concerned about. So the threat that this decision that overturns Roe has for same-sex marriage was highlighted at one San Diego service that you reported on. Tell us about that. The St. Paul's Cathedral and Episcopalian Church, they have a pretty good LGBT community there, a, a significant number of their con congregation, and they were concerned about that. They were also concerned about the statements made by Justice Clarence Thomas that additional subjects that, uh, that have been decided for a long time could be addressed, and there could be changes in, in things like same-sex marriage and contraception. Um, so that was very concerning to their congregation. Now, the Catholic Church has been an active opponent of legal abortion since the Roe decision 50 years ago. What was the reaction of the church here in San Diego? The bishop, I think he's soon to be Cardinal McElroy, issued a statement in support of the decision and saying that that he was pleased and the church was pleased and that uh, they would continue to, they also talked about how they would support these people and continue to work on this from a number of directions. Basically, he said that today is a day to give thanks and celebrate. Catholic social teaching holds that life begins at conception, which has long been an important part of the Catholic faith, I believe. He said that the ruling affirms that belief and recognizes the ability of states to regulate abortion to protect the rights of the unborn. Now, the Catholic Church has been working to bring down Roe for decades. So I'm wondering, does the church have any plans to provide the quality health care, affordable housing, good jobs, and decent housing that the future Cardinal McElroy spoke about in his statement? 
That is something that the church works on. They have a specific agency, Catholic Charities, that helps provide housing, helps provide healthcare services, and a lot of things like that. So that is sort of an arm of the church that works on those things. Other religious groups in San Diego had a more measured response to the reversal of the Roe v. Wade decision. Here's Phil Metzger, pastor of Calvary, San Diego. Every place, I don't care what institution it is, statistically, somebody in that group had an abortion. So we have to ask ourselves, are they my enemy? They're not. And whatever reason brought them to making these hard choices, God loves them. Did you hear any other more measured responses from church leaders around San Diego? Yes. So I talked to Pastor Mike Colleen at First Presbyterian Church in Oceanside, and he talked about how diverse the opinions were within his own congregation. He asked people who had strong feelings about it, and a lot of people responded. But he said that that is something that everyone has to work out between themselves and their faith. So he just encouraged people to get along and and to try and understand that there were many ways of looking at this issue. In your article in the Union Tribune, there were also reports from other religious leaders, some of them non-Christian, and especially from the Jewish religion. Tell us about that. The rabbi of a congregation in Irvine, California, was disappointed with the ruling and said that uh, a lot of the members of her community still support each other and are concerned about this and what it would mean for the rights of women and others that will be affected. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune reporter Phil Deal. And Phil, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. A group of parents of missing children uncovered a mass grave hidden on the eastern edge of Tijuana last week. And this isn't the first time. Parents have formed search parties because they don't trust the government to look for their missing children. KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis has more. The stench of rotting corpses is so strong that it makes volunteers sick after just a few minutes. So parents take turns digging out the eight bodies they found buried in a ditch. 
Se quitan con los ojos, se lo cambian y vuelven a agarrar otra vez, por favor. No pueden trabajar más de 8 minutos. That was Eddie Carrillo, warning volunteers not to spend too much time near the bodies. Carrillo is the founder of a collective called Todos Somos Eric Carrillo. It's made up of people who help each other find missing relatives. Carrillo named the collective after his own son, who vanished in 2018 while visiting his mother in Tijuana. Roughly 50 people joined the search party that day. Carrillo says none of them should be out there. That's the government's job. He says government officials are doing nothing, so parents must scour the landscape for their lost relatives themselves. There are currently 12,000 missing people in Baja California. Governor Marina del Pilar Avila says that her administration is prioritizing these cases. The state agency tasked with finding missing persons says it found 90 people last year, compared to just 10 the year before. Critics say that progress is not good enough. Most of the 90 missing people found were dead and accounted for less than 1% of all missing person cases in Baja California. Francisco Osegueda founded the original collective made up of parents missing children back in 2008. He says the agency tasked with finding the missing is underfunded and only has six investigators. That's not nearly enough to find the thousands of missing people in the state, he says. Osegueda says that the government is not conducting thorough investigations. It's emblematic of a larger problem in Mexico, where murders and robberies often go uninvestigated. So why would the government investigate missing people? Despite being less than three years old, Carrillo's collective has more than 400 members. Josefina Martinez joined soon after her son went missing on December 26, 2001. She says state officials assigned an investigator to the case, but no one has ever called her about it. She also says they won't return her calls. And that's a common refrain among members of the search party. Carrillo says police view victims with suspicion. They assume that people who disappear are tied to organized crime or were up to no good. Carrillo says investigators often tell loved ones things like, your son runs with the wrong crowd, your husband is a narco, or your uncle is a thug. Raul Cornejo is another member of the collective. He joined in February, shortly after his brother went missing. Cornejo says the collective is like a family. Parents of missing children come together, bonded by the pain. He says they find hope in their shared mission to find their loved ones. It's been nearly six months since he last heard anything about his brother. But Carnejo refuses to give up because doing that would be like admitting that his brother is gone forever. The collective is still waiting to discover the identities of the eight bodies they found last week. Parents submitted DNA samples, hoping to find a match. Gustavo Solis, KPBS News. Joining me is KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis. And Gustavo, welcome. Thank you, Maureen. 12,000 missing people in Baja, California. Can you give us a a comparison of how many people go missing here in California or in other U.S. states? Well, I looked up some of the data with the California Department of Justice. They actually publish annual reports on missing uh, folks. They they break it down by missing children and missing adults. For example, in 2021, there were about 37,000 adults reported missing, and more than 36,000 were found alive in one way or another. 
So what are the theories about why so many people are missing in Baja? Well, the main theory, the, the, the one that came up the most in my reporting was some kind of connection to organized crime. It, it's something that, that comes up both from parents, uh, but also from law enforcement. A lot of law enforcement and, and uh, government authorities tasked with finding these missing people share that same theory, which actually hurts more than it helps in a lot of cases. Families find that when they report their loved one missing, the missing person is, is automatically kind of assumed to, to, to be a bad person. Do you know how the Ericario group got a tip on where to dig for the bodies they found? All he told me was was that it was an anonymous tip through a phone call, uh, which isn't that out of the blue for this group. They'd get a lot of anonymous tips just because, frankly, a lot of people with information are afraid for their own lives. Uh, if they share th this kind of information, it, it gets out who, who did this, right? I mean, if we're talking about mass graves, I mean, th like that's obviously like multiple crimes right there, right? So if you have information about that, you don't want your name out there, both because it would get the police's attention, but it would also get the criminal organization's uh, attention. So in this case, it was an anonymous tip. Uh, I know they, they do a ton of work um, on social media. They do live streams of, of, of their searches, and then they do shout outs or call outs for more information. Actually, in this latest one where they did find the, the mass grave, they, there's video of them when they find it and, and when they're uncovering it. There's videos of, of the organizers telling the volunteers to stop digging and, and, and step away because of the toxic fumes from, from the body. So they're very active on social media and they get tips that way from, from all over Mexico, not just Baja California. Actually, they're actually going to uh, a couple of states like Guerrero and Michoacán uh, later this month. Once the bodies were found this time, did the government of Baja take over? So they, they, they did take over eventually. Uh, you, you can see if you follow the group on some of the Facebook lives that the, the volunteers were digging for more than a half an hour before any official came, right? Before, before there were like medical examiners or paramedics or, or any type of official government response showed up. They, they were digging themselves. They were calling the police. That response, in the volunteers' view, was a little bit lackluster and, and kind of speaks to bigger criticisms they have of the response. Well, Gustavo, this is a really a tragic story. The people involved are already in distress because their loved ones are missing and they're looking for them, and, and then they dig up bodies in their search. Did you get any sense of how the members of this group are holding up emotionally? Yeah, I asked them about that, and and they just do it together. Like there is, these volunteer groups are are essentially just a bunch of broken people coming together, holding on to the last bit of hope that they have, and finding strength in in that community. Right there are there. I spoke to a a, a mother of of a twenty one year old from Chiapas, the the most southern state in Mexico that borders uh, Guatemala. Her son came to to Tijuana in October for a vacation went missing. She stopped her whole life and is now living in, in Tijuana. And, and unfortunately, she found her son in the morgue's office. He, he had passed away. She's staying in Tijuana and helping other people. She's participating in other searches and is kind of finding meaning that way. She, she actually is kind of afraid to go back to Chiapas because she doesn't want to go back to her home where her 
son's room is still the way he left it back in October. There's this kind of sense of dread and, and excitement when, when you uncover a grave. You know, is this the one? Is this where you're going to find the person you've been looking for, for for months, if not years? And are you ready to kind of face that? I, I spoke to some people that, that said even even finding the corpse of your dead relative is, you know, relatively speaking, a, a win because you don't have that uncertainty, that that unknown, right? This this idea, you, you get some sense of closure. It's obviously not what you wanted, but it's you, you can stop searching now. You kind of found it and you can move on to another part of the grieving process. Um, pe- people handle it all kinds of different ways, but common denominator is that they, they do it together and they do find some kind of therapy through the the act of volunteering and searching. Gustavo, thank you very much. Well, thanks for having me, Maureen. Really appreciate this. The big fix for the San Diego region's U.S.-Mexico border sewage problem is several years away. But that doesn't mean sewage will flow unabated until then. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson says some smaller-scale projects are already having a positive impact. This is the line portion of the channel where it transitions to the natural. When Morgan Rogers surveys the concrete-lined Tijuana River channel as it crosses the international border, he sees progress. This is a good viewpoint. You can see that all the sediment that has accumulated, this is from the uh, the wet season. Rogers is a civil engineer in charge of pollution control on the U.S. side of the border. This concrete channel is a conduit for pollution that fouls the ocean just a few miles away. So you can see when it, when it rains, we get rainwater, it, it carries a lot of sediment, a lot of trash. You see, you see a lot of tires here. But when it's not raining, most sewage-tainted flows can be stopped by a relatively low-tech solution. What we have here is a sediment berm. This is constructed with the sediment that was deposited on the uh, concrete channel. This was constructed and maintained by Mexico. We provide the equipment, in particular a uh, wheeled loader, and whatever else they need to facilitate their constructing the berm and maintaining it. Look over the sediment wall and there's standing water. A few hundred yards north, a Mexican pump station pulls most of that water out of the river channel. During the dry season, this is very effective for preventing flows from coming down the river and crossing the border into the United States. And there are other small success stories. Rogers takes us to a culvert just north of the border wall. Look through the fence here, and you can see cars zipping by on a Mexican highway. Okay, this is Stewart Strain, one of our five canyon collectors. Crews recently fixed an underground gate here that was locked in place, creating pressure when sewage flows under the border wall were heavy. With the gate now fully open, flows are easier to manage. There is a trickle of water coming through the drain on this day, but it's hardly an issue. So this isn't something I would worry about. I mean, we want to eliminate all flows, but we're handling this one. The progress by the International Boundary and Water Commission has been noticed and is welcome. I'm very happy with what I call the micro fixes that the IBWC has made. Micro fixes that can stop flows that can result in weeks of closures. Serge Dedina is the mayor of Imperial Beach. He says stopping the flow of sewage through the Tijuana estuary helps, but those micro fixes don't solve the border pollution problem. His city's beaches have been posted as polluted for much of the summer because of a broken Mexican sewage treatment plant. They discharge 
30 to 50 million gallons of raw sewage on the beach every day between, I think it's four and a half to six miles south of the border. And during south swell and south wind that, that comes up to Imperial Beach, as well as all the other discharge sites from Playa southward to Rosarito. That's one reason the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is pushing for a comprehensive solution, which includes projects on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border. Officials hope to capture and treat sewage-tainted flows that cross the border on land and built a treatment plant that works south of the border. But it'll still be a couple of years before any major sewage treatment plants start to be built. It's not fast enough, uh, but but it is, it is a priority for us. Nora Vargas is the vice chair of the County Board of Supervisors. She says it's important to remember that a fix is coming for communities that have long endured the public health crisis. She says focusing on pollution postings at South County beaches during the dry summer month shouldn't become a distraction. Let's not villainize um, um, the test. Let's not make it about businesses or, or community. Let's make it about our communities being um, you know, safe and healthy so that everybody can enjoy um, the beauty of, of our beaches in, in Southern California and in the South Bay. The hope is with all these small projects already underway and the big projects that are on the drawing board, they'll all work together to keep sewage-tainted flows out of the river valley which in turn will keep those sewage-tainted flows out of the ocean. Eric Anderson, KPBS News. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. San Diego has a thriving, diverse music scene. From rock and roll, to jazz, to classical, to rap, there's a lot to listen to in the border region, and a lot of artists making great music. One of those artists is rapper Rick Scales, one half of the hip-hop duo 18 Scales, along with MC Raph Quasar. Not only is Scales a recording artist and performer, he also co-hosts the monthly Slappin' Hands Hip-Hop and R&B Showcase and frequently collaborates with the Old Globe's Word Up program. As part of KPBS's Influential series, we asked Scales to make us a playlist of music that influenced his work. Here are the tracks he chose in his own words. My family, we were kind of the family that we would sit around in the basement and listen to tapes and records and sing and dance and play the piano and harmonize together. So it's safe to say that their music was a part of my musical development. Music's always been a part of my life. It's always going to be a part of what I'm doing.
Skeletons by Stevie Wonder, its influence on me has been existent for as long as I've been alive. It's one of the first records I recall ever listening to. My mother and father had it on vinyl, and I just remember listening to the song, and it had like this funky vibe. And then as I got older and started to comprehend more what he was saying, I realized that it's uh, that there's a lot of social commentary in the song, and, that, and that's always had a, a large influence on not only how I view the world, but how I go about the music that I make because the song Skeletons in and of itself, it's very danceable, it's very fun, but he's also saying something in such a way where it's like, it's not direct, it's not like finger shaking, but it it is definitely like, you, you can tell that there's something going on deeper if you're not fully listening. That's always been one of my general favorite things about Stevie Wonder in general is his contrast, where it's like he'll have a song that sounds like a sad song, but it's a happy song or vice versa. The song Skeletons has basically been a song that's been part of my life for as far back as I can remember. Quicksand Millennium from The Roots is one of my favorite hip-hop songs of all time criminally underrated they have this way of going about music i don't even know how to explain it it's just a beautiful song when you listen to it and then you take into consideration what is being said in the song you know it was prior to you know the year 2000 where everyone thought the world was coming to an end and then the lyrical aspects of it the plays on the ideas is what always got to me like in the chorus they say somebody told me it's the end of the world but that's just for some Peace to the dead, strength to the chosen, quicksand millennium. Just the way that they went about the sonic aspects of it, the keys, the horns in the background that just kind of like glide in at the very beginning, their cadences and things of that nature are just things that really always resonated with me. A Tribe Called Quest award tour, one of my favorite songs ever. I remember when I first started identifying as like what you would call a hip hop head at a young age. I was about 14. I was playing a video game, actually. It was uh, Thrasher Skate and Destroy. They had a crazy soundtrack. I just remember being immediately drawn in by the beat. It was just the general vibe. Like it was clearly jazz influenced. It was fun. Then they had like the feature from, I think it was True Goy from De La Soul. The way he just went about it. We on award tour with my and my man. Going each and every place with the mic in their hand. So I be 
sublime. It's enjoyable to know you in the concrete. Once I heard that, it kind of made me realize rap music doesn't have to be about just money or selling drugs. It can just really be about whatever. Tribe Called Quest Award Tour is definitely a life altering song for me. I've Been Watching You by Parliament is another one of those songs. The Clones of Dr. Funkenstein, it was in my family's vinyl collection. And I remember looking at the album cover and being like, what is this weird stuff as like a little kid? And then you check it out and you come across it. It's just a fun song. It's another one of those songs that there's such a blend of feelings and like ambience there like they have this way of singing that's very unconventional it's another thing that's very whimsical but then very serious i love the way it comes in the guitars bass line they have so many things going on and then it's like when they come in they're all kind of singing in unison with this weird kind of i've been watching you know Just the way that they do it, it's always had an influence on the way I go about making my music. It's just one of those things. Like, I just love George Clinton's voice, the way he plays with it. Like, it's a thing where it's, it doesn't take itself too seriously while seriously doing something is very important to me. Parliament, I've been watching you, Clones of Dr. Funkenstein, super influential for me. No Ideas Original by Nas. Oh man, I think it was my junior or senior year of high school. He had this project called The Lost Tapes, which is hands down my favorite Nas project. It comes in and it starts with the beat and you just hear Nas, uh, uh. And then the first thing that he says, no ideas original. There's nothing new under the sun. It's never what you do, but how it's done. What you base your happiness around material women in large paper. That makes you inferior, not major. No ideas original. There's nothing new under the sun. It's never what you do, but how it's done. What you base your happiness around material women in large paper. That means you inferior. That's like my mantra because here in the hip hop world, there is always a constant like, oh, well, I did this first, but did you? you know what I'm saying like everything's been done before everything's been said before pretty much every movie that you watch is a Shakespearean story but it's the way that you go about doing those things and then there's just so many different things about that song the cadences the way that he raps to be able to say so much with so little words it's always been something that I've tried to emulate like Nas is another one of my all-time favorites no ideas original from the lost tapes pops in my head like three four times a day 
super influential. For today's mathematics, we are lost children, and this was going on in every New York ghetto. Kids listen, five percent of said it's pork and jello. We coincide, we in the same life. Maybe a time difference on a different coast, but we share the same sunlight. You're part of the world, might be like colors and gangs. While on my side, brothers are murdered for different things, but it all revolves around drugs, fame, and shorties. Stuck for your bling, strip for your chain, the same story. There's so many things going on in uh, the San Diego hip hop scene. It's one of those things where you think you're gonna find out about it, you're gonna go there and there's nothing going on. There's a lot. You're gonna pull up, you're gonna be blown away by how many people are in the scene, how many people are participating, and how many people are just there to be there. There's pretty much always something going on in the city of San Diego. It's a beautiful time to be a part of San Diego hip hop. It's a beautiful scene and I'm super lucky to be a part of it for sure. That was local rapper and hip-hop artist Rick Scales, who will be performing as part of 18 Scales live at the Music Box on July 27th. For more details, as well as a playlist of all of these tracks, go to our website, kpbs.org.